Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you would like to support the show, you can consider that through my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month to get access to premium content. Uh, like I've been, well, for instance, uh, I, I have almost exclusively pushed my Q&A podcast to my Patreon supporters. So it's, it's been a lot easier to manage it that way, where I can just ask them, hey, what questions do you have and devote Patreon-only podcasts to, um, sorry, uh, devote Q&A podcasts to my Patreon-only supporters. So if you do miss the Q&As, I know some of you do, I'm sorry, but uh, um, yeah, you can... <laughs> That sounds so sleazy. Oh, you want your Q&A? Well, better support me. That's not, that's not the point. So I'm just going to stop because I'm getting myself in trouble. But this whole podcast is going to get me in trouble. I have back on the show Ed Yuzinski, my very good friend, Ed Yuzinski. Ed and I go way, way back. He is one of the most enjoyable human beings I've ever been around. He's a thoughtful guy. He's provocative. He doesn't mind mixing it up. He doesn't mind asking super hard questions. He doesn't mind at all pushing back. And I, that's what I love. I, I just, I, I can talk to Ed for hours and we have a long conversation here. So Ed and I, we get into the whole, well, let me the little backstory. I said, Ed, can you help us think through critical theory and specifically critical race theory? Because he is somewhat of an expert in that. He did, he did his PhD basically in critical theory, or at least that was a huge part of it. And, um, Ed's such a thoughtful guy. He's willing to consider things from all angles. He's, um, he thinks, thoroughly through things. He doesn't just react. He's very balanced um, in so many different ways. So that was the goal to talk about critical theory. We did that for the first mm, 10 minutes. And then we ended up getting into the race conversation. And look, I, I'm going to be the first one to admit that it, it doesn't have the best brand, the best look when two white dudes in 2020 are talking about race. Um, now I, if you've been listening to the show over the last several months, you know, that that's not my typical MO. Okay. So hopefully you're not going to judge my entire approach to race by this episode. Um, at the same time, both of us have been in kind of engaging the race conversation for like 15, well, for me about 15 years for him it goes way back even farther than that. Um, and we think out loud. We had some good, honest conversations here. We pushed back. I, I mean, to be honest, there were times when we were so deep in thought and being so honest that I almost forgot that the record button was still on. I don't think I swore. I don't think he swore, but we did. We were just totally honest with just how we're thinking. So take it for what it's worth. We're thinking out loud through stuff, willing to ask the hard question questions and I might have Ed back on because we might need to clean some stuff up. Okay. I'm just procrastinating because I'm kind of nervous about this one. I hope I don't lose too many listeners, but it is what it is. We're two honest guys. So, all right, let's just jump in. Ed Uzinski talking about race relations in America. All right. Hey, friends. I'm here with my very good friend, long-term colleague, partner in crime. I don't know if we help each other out or make each other go to dark places, but uh, I have on the show Dr. Ed Yuzinski. I, I don't know if I've ever called you doctor before. Um, we stir each other up, man. We, I, that is a good question as to whether we're something positive or negative for each other. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Ed and I go way back to my days at Cedarville University in Ohio. We did church together at Xenia Baptist. I think it was called. I don't know if they changed your name. Um, we've kept in touch ever since. Uh, I brought Ed on because I wanted to talk about critical theory um, and critical race theory. I know they're not completely different, but they're not the same thing. Wait, did I just say the same thing twice? Anyway, um, I brought Ed on because Ed is, on in various ways, I want to say both, I mean, an, I, I want to say an expert. I mean, you studied this stuff at a PhD level at a pretty top-notch um, secular university, Bowling Green. So wh- why, don't we, why don't we do this? Um, get, get, yeah, why are you interested in this conversation, critical theory, specifically mm-hmm. critical race theory. I know you have a personal journey and also an academic journey and those kind of yeah. um, intertwine with each other. So tell us a bit about yeah. that. No, that's good, Preston. And so I did a PhD in what is called American culture studies. And when I got to Bowling Green, I think it was 2007, 2008, um, I didn't even know what critical theory was. And I, I think I won't even get into all the of it, but I just I thought that an analysis of American culture was going to look very different than what it wound up looking like, and what it wound up looking like was being up to my neck in critical theory, hmm. which we can keep talking about. But um, so for you know five years, I I swam in those waters, and I pretty much s- submitted myself to that worldview very intentionally because I had already done, and and you know this, I had already done conservative theological degrees at Mm -hmm. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, And so I sort of wanted to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and get a secular view of culture. Um, Ecclesiastes has always been my favorite (laughs) Bible book. And I think that part of the reason why I love it is because it tries to make sense of the world under the sun apart from God, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was just at a point in my life where I really wanted to understand a secular view of the world. Hmm. And I and I got one. I got a hmm. I got immersed in what we now all know as it's critical theory. So that was a that's a, and you you know you say I'm an expert. I, what I know that is true about me is that I have a, a better than Twitter understanding of critical theory. Yeah. Um just like any theological discipline though to become an actual expert in critical theory may not even be possible just because it's so wide ranging there's so many different voices there's so many different views so many of them are contradictory contradictory hmm. again not on un, not unlike going deep in the rabbit hole in any theological tradition hmm. you know um but i know that that i got my share of it for a so, stretch of time i know a, a lot i just i feel like a lot of people are talking about it now um but for those who maybe don't even know, maybe they're hearing it for the first time, critical theory. Can you give us maybe maybe the basic definition overview? And then I know that's going to probably lead to lots of other um, little strands we can chase down. For someone who doesn't even know what that means, what, what, what is critical theory? Yeah, and this is what becomes overwhelming, even as I've sort of dug back into this in the last few months and tried to reacquaint myself with some some definitions and just where the world you come from. So. You'll, you'll hear critical theory. You'll hear this idea of cultural Marxism. Mm-hmm. So most of us don't really are not that well acquainted with Marxism. When we think about Marxists, we think of communist nations that oppress their people and destroyed millions of people. <laughs> it, that's that's usually our understanding of Marxism. But uh, Karl Marx's theory was largely based on the idea that 
there. Uh, it's an economic philosophy that is looking at people who have means and who have wealth and who control the means of production in a society and then everybody else. Okay. So regardless of what anybody thinks about it, and this is where everybody, their minds start running wild when they hear that, you know, especially capitalists who <laughs> hate what they think Marxism become. But, but his, his lens through which he was viewing the world was to look out for the people who he felt were being oppressed or marginalized, that the have-nots. So that's the foundation of it. What it grew into over the next hundred years were different schools of thought then that began to look at all different aspects of society through that lens. How does power work in society? And, and so you get these different strands of critical theory where the goal is to take what is and to deconstruct it to understand why things are the way they are. So we know that this is the case it, when, when it comes to women in society. What is the history of how women have been viewed and how they've been treated largely by men who have had power to do what they want and to make the rules about how society is going to work? Feminist theory embraces a cultural Marxism or what has come to be known as critical theory by breaking that apart, by starting to erase the lines of what's considered normal mm. um, and, and assuming that wherever the lines have been placed down, they've been placed there to keep women in their place as an mm. example. So critical theory is an effort to, to deconstruct that and to mm. see through that um, with, with the aim ultimately, and again, this is kind of a dangerous assumption even to make at best with the aim of at least leveling the playing field by getting rid, rid of lines that are, intentionally there to oppress assuming that those lines are intentionally there to oppress if there's any um unequal outcome then the assumption is that somebody at the top has intentionally rigged the system maybe that's not the best phrase established a system intentionally or does it need to be intentional um Again, this is where it's this is where it splinters off. Okay. So there's plenty of schools of thought that are just looking for those places where it has been intentional, and there's plenty of history mm-hmm. um, to support that mm-hmm. where intentional moves were made, and then there's unintentional things that happen just because it starts to become the water that we swim in. Mm-hmm. That there start to be biases towards a particular people group that start to get baked into the system. So that's where you get these ideas of of a systemic oppression or things get built into the law or they get built into the entertainment industry or built into academia and the books that we read that help to maintain a status quo that's oppressive. Okay, okay. Well, keep going. I I, I cut you off. Or or are you – is that about it? Or Well, ask – Maybe ask other questions about it. So I don't know if that clears anything up for people or that makes it any. Yeah. So, so as I kind of understand what you're saying and as I've done, and so just for my audience, I'm coming in as a learner. I mean, Ed has been dealing this with this stuff for a long time. Um, and I, I read a few books, listened to some stuff. I'm just trying to get my mind around it. And I, I'm, I try to be a slow thinker, um, and yet I'll have opinion. I'll read something. You know, we we got some books here that I can show that I've read, and I'm like, man, that was a garbage book. That's my opinion. Now, I'm not going to say, like, I'm an expert on the topic. I'm just saying this is as I'm reading this book or that book or whatever, you know, 
I, I do have a mind that's that's going as I'm reading, you know. So I am processing what I'm coming across, um, but trying not to make a global kind of um, statement or opinion until I really understand it better, which might never be. Um, but it, so it seems like the Marxist strand that is built into critical theory, if I can put it like that, kind of views the world in terms of you have the the oppressed and the oppressor. Like either you you belong to one category or the other. Would that be correct? Like either you're in a position of power, wealth, control. And if you are, that's not a morally neutral position. If you have power, wealth, and control, you are, it, you belong to the group of oppress of oppressor. Um, in, in as much as there is inequality in the world, if you're at the top and there's un- inequality, then you're part of the problem would that be inaccurate would that be one strand or is that kind of like yeah anybody who would promote embrace critical theory as a lens to view the world would agree with that or is that an um well or is that too simplistic yeah well that's the word that i keep thinking of is that it is simplistic but it's also true so you know i'll speak from my own experience so the people that i was in school with the cohort of fellow phds and academics and and the different um, seminars that we went to, the different people that we listened to. What I became convinced of is that the the ex- most extreme version of this, and I used to come home and tell my wife this all the time, is, is just setting out to erase wherever there's been lines drawn mm-hmm. of authority, wherever there's been lines of power, wherever there's been lines drawn where no- things are b- being called normal, the radical critical theorist is seeking to erase those mm-hmm. and get rid of them. And so right now, the, the easiest way to separate people and to think about people generically is that there are, there are you know white men who have particular privilege in this culture and who have held power for you know the hundreds of years that this, that this nation has existed, mm-hmm. that fundamentally they are the problem. And that they need to be erased in no uncertain terms. And I, I think that's what that's that is the radical version of it that people are reacting against and the different ways that that seeps out into culture. So there are some people and I, I do see this in the statements people make that being both you and I are white, straight men, that 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 we don't um, that that is morally problematic. Simple our very existence as we participate in these uh, dominant categories of being white, being male, being straight, um, that's not morally neutral. Like we are morally problematic simply for, we could be in a coma. (laughs) We could, um, you know, uh, you know, we we could be doing mother Teresa type actions. We could be doing whatever, but our actions, whether they're moral or not, is maybe secondary to the category to which we belong. Would that be – some people would see it that way? For sure. And that there, there's not a – you know, even when you talk about moral, what one of the things that I started to realize is that there there is not a Judeo-Christianity morality framework behind this, right. obviously – in fact, that is viewed as being a, a tool in the hands of the oppressor over the course of history. There really isn't a moral framework at all to draw upon other than 
and I've read so many articles about this, there, there are good guys and there are bad guys and the bad guys need to be taken out. Well, to what end? So that you can become a bad guy now? So that now you can have power? How does, how does that, what is the end game in all of this for those people. And honestly, I don't feel like the in the extreme version, they don't have one. They really don't. They don't have one that, that amounts to a humanistic flourishing for all people. Mm-hmm. It's just a power flip, hmm. ultimately. How would they respond to that? Because that, that seems kind of obvious, but... I... Uh, by changing the subject. <laughs> by redirecting. Um, I used to bring that up all the time. And so they're they're really, you know, by getting frustrated by, you know, the way anybody does when they feel like they're put in a corner and, and shown the the um, the emptiness of their worldview. It really becomes very nihilistic. Yeah. At the end, you know, um, it becomes very dark. <laughs> so. So, so but, I mean, you sound for my audience, you sound pretty critical of it, but I don't you, you have. Um, you're sympathetic to certain things within critical theory, right? I mean, there, you you would say there are certain things that they that that school of thought is getting right, or would you say that? Or I think that critical theory provides us lenses to look through that that are helpful. I don't need to. This is what I keep saying to people. I don't. I don't have to embrace its starting point nor its conclusions to still be able to say that there are observations being made mm-hmm. that actually align with what I think is true okay. and that legitimately need to be criticized. Can you give some examples of that? Well, I mean, I would say this especially, so we're here to talk specifically about critical race theory. Right. Okay. So it, it is undeniable that over the course of the American experience that black people as a as a whole in general have certainly fit the definition of being oppressed sure in general over the course of the history of this nation and that there has been a group of people that have very intentionally kept them in that situation right so the 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 strand of what we're calling critical race theory started in the 70s and 80s and began to deconstruct laws that were in place that were very intentionally put in place that were being used to continue to keep black people as an other so i look at situations like that and i think well no that's actually right. very helpful i don't know a that. single human that would disagree with that though like I mean, I listen to people on the far right, far left, and the, I've, the far right would say that I've listened to at least would would uh, you know uh, frequently um, acknowledge the horrors and just profound oppression that our white dominated society has had towards black people. Um, yeah, the problem, Preston, with it is that, and this is where I think it becomes overly simplistic in the conversations that I'm in, is the assumption that that's all just completely disappeared. Okay. That that's just disappeared somehow. Yeah. That, that somewhere in the 1960s or, you know, whether it was when Obama became president (laughs) or when the civil rights act was passed in the sixties, that somehow hundreds of years of what had been getting taught and passed down just all of a sudden dissolved into thin air. Yeah. 
All yeah. of a sudden, all the laws that had been put in place just suddenly disappeared because they were no longer separate but equal water fountains anymore. Yeah. That somehow the whole the whole enterprise just flipped over somehow while we were all asleep and we woke up one day and it all just disappeared. Yeah. And that's what I think is a little I think I think that's overly simplistic and almost silly. Do, so, do people actually say that though? That's that's where again I I I don't I don't personally have not not talked to people where wherever they're on the spectrum who don't acknowledge the lasting effects of 400 years of oppression where they would push back is to say when people give the impression that nothing has changed I'm like whoa <laughs> like people draw a straight line slavery and we're still basically in the same situation like they don't like it's that two extremes like people um don't acknowledge any sort of progress versus people who do the opposite say we've had so much progress we've had obama and there's oprah and all this stuff um cl- surely there's some somewhere in between C- clearly we're not still in the 18 17 1800s or even in jim crow like things have changed right. a lot but yep. clearly you can't just yeah like you said think that oh we got rid of jim crow and you know 1969 everything's just great like <laughs> but again I don't, I don't hear anybody actually saying that i hear people critiquing that view i just don't hear anybody promoting that view <laughs> and i'm not saying it doesn't exist it's just i don't know um do you hear people saying that like What's the problem? We're done. We're gone. There's no more racism, you know? Um, well, sure I do. That's yeah. what I was going to say. I think, you know how this goes, Preston. It all depends on who you're talking sure. to, yeah. what conversations you're in, what are we listening to and watching on, on social media, mm-hmm. which is a whole other issue when it comes to all this, just the, the, the voices that are out there that, that, that feel authoritative and it mm-hmm. feels like it might be a majority of people just because in one comment thread, a whole bunch of people take one position. And I don't know what to do with that. Uh, but I definitely think here, here's what I actually think is happening among. So, so here, let's make these generalizations. So I'm thinking about my white Christian friends. Okay. This is the way that it shows itself in a strange way to me. All this has been going on for these last, even just this last year. So intensely, Ahmaud Arbery, we see the Ahmaud Arbery video Mm -hmm. and have a pretty clear explanation of what happened by the guys that did it. If you read the police report, I mean, they were pretty straightforward about what the assumptions that they made and what it was that they were going to do. Mm -hmm. And we all got to see that something went way wrong, which sometimes happens when you want to be a tough guy and you go get your guns and you're going to go chase somebody. Sometimes things go really wrong. Okay. Forget the rage part of this. Sometimes that happens. Okay. Right. Well, we get to see that video. Now, I watched that video, and I mean, it makes my stomach sure. drop, right? It makes you sick to watch that. If you have any kind of human compassion and empathy and all those words that should be growing in us as Christians, mm-hmm. the first response ought to be some kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. And you, mm-hmm. I think you talked about this with Tyler, yeah, um, right? Yeah. That, that we should feel something when horrible things happen. Well, I can't tell you how many emails I got. Oh, and I wrote an article called, How Should We Talk to Our Kids About Ahmaud Arbery? Mm. And all it was was just a simple primer on talking to them about justice and, and injustice in the world and mm-hmm. 
talking to them about ethnicity because that's what's being talked about right now. So let's let's use this as an opportunity to talk about that. Talk to them about how to feel with people when they're mm-hmm. suffering. Mm-hmm. Okay? Indiscriminately when somebody's suffering, learn to learn to connect to that somehow. Mm-hmm. I yeah. can't tell you how many people responded to that by sending me a Candace Owens video or by sending me a video that was somehow to correct me huh. in my thinking to make sure that I understood that there's this other side, uh, politically speaking, and, and that he may have been a criminal and that he's just being used by the liberal left. And that he, so, so the immediate reaction, and I know you've heard this because mm-hmm. I've listened to some of, mm-hmm. of your guests. The immediate reaction is to dismiss it. Mm-hmm. The immediate reaction when something is is called racial, whether it is or isn't, and I don't know that we can always prove what's going on with people when it comes to race, but when the immediate reaction is to dismiss that, yeah, yeah, that sounds like what we've done pretty consistently throughout decades since the Civil War. Yeah, that's good. Coming up with ways to continue to dismiss the cries of there being something wrong in our society, Mm -hmm. in our society. I think Tyler said this or somebody else that I heard. If you won't even acknowledge that there's a problem, how are you going to try to think intelligently about how to fix it? And I really don't believe I, I still believe there's a ton of people out there in the church who just don't even believe it's a problem. Yeah. They, they've written it off as just a tool of the liberal left or mm-hmm. that, you know, the Democrats are just using this to race bait us or to divide yeah. us. And all that. some of that, that may be true, but it doesn't then erase the fact that yeah. there actually really is something wrong here. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I was going to say. Like both can be true at the same time. There could be all kinds of ideological spins on that event, which there have been. Um, and yet it can, we can still acknowledge that that event was absolutely horrific. Our gut should turn, our heart should bleed, and we should do a lot of listening to people who don't just see that event in isolation, but historically connected. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't well, just look at white on black crime and murder in isolation. You can't. And this is where maybe critical theory is helpful in some regards to help us see the systems, the structures, the historical connectedness. And I do see that as, yeah. So, I mean, I, I agree with that. Here's where I struggle is, and, and Tyler, it was so helpful when I talked to him about this. Like I, I, I am a, like a, I, I'm a big fact evidence based kind of person. I've been yeah. my whole life. I've been, you know, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. I'm like, well, where? Show me the evidence. I want to look at the evidence. What's the counter evidence? And why is this evidence more superior? You know, that's just the way my mind operates. Is that now? And some people would say, well, you have a the privilege <laughs> because you're a white male to be able to sit back and ask for evidence. While we or, you know, people of color might say we have the lived experience, you know, and I just I just have I'm just truly wrestling with that. So, like, when I saw the film of Arbery, I didn't tweet anything. I didn't do anything. I just sat sat back and said, "Okay, well, I I, I need to get my arms around this event. Um, Was he just going on a jog? Did he just come from a house where he raped somebody? None of that's true. You know, well, the jog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But these are I just want to I want to know, because like just seeing this clip in isolation tells me 
I can st- and even if he did look I'm <laughs> I believe in nonviolence I don't believe in the death penalty even if he was a criminal even if he did was running from a murder scene or something I still don't think he should be shot so I mean I either way I can look at this and say this I can acknowledge this is a horrible event and yet I, I is it is it is it wrong to ask for evidence like or what are all the facts surrounding this do you think I mean I don't yeah, I don't think it is. I guess what I always wonder is what, why, okay? What it, what is your well, I, goal in asking for evidence? So go ahead, you answer that. Yeah, I I, I've got a clear, is. yeah, a, a clear why because I am being socially asked to protest, to fight, to, and that's like I, I am. Look, I, I have a a. a protest kind of demeanor but i need to know what it is i'm fighting against and if and in that case i need to have i do need facts i can't just go on uh anecdotal lived experience without i'm not racing those at all i'm just saying like if i'm going to acknowledge that there is a systemic problem or problems then i do need more than anecdotal evidence of that problem and maybe there is maybe there isn't I'm, that's genuinely where i'm at i'm trying to get my arms around um various like i i yeah it, it, is there systemic racism among the american police force i'm gonna need lots of, i'm just and there's been studies done on on this and i to just assume that there is isn't it i can't do that if i'm gonna actually get behind um a movement uh, I do need clear evidence. And I would say that with any issue, right? I mean, if <laughs> I know, Chris, and so would I. So this this is where I think the privilege comes in. And, and this is where I think it gets difficult and potentially offensive to people. Yeah. Okay. Is that we, th- here's what a, this is a, privilege is such a loaded term. This it is, is a n- yeah. nice convenience. This is a wonderful, a wonderful convenience mm-hmm. to have these issues that are coming up in the news that we wouldn't even know about them apart from news, mm-hmm. right? We're completely dependent on news even telling us what's going on around us out there in the world to some degree, okay? Mm-hmm. And so we can look at these things that have happened in the last couple of years and just try to analyze them mm-hmm. in this moment, yeah. okay? And try to figure yeah. out what's happening in this moment. I think those are totally legitimate questions to ask. I ask the same questions. What really happened? I, want, I ask that no matter what I see go on. Because I know things are always mediated as they're given to me. So I, I want to know as best as I can know the truth of a situation. Here's where it becomes problematic to use that word when it comes to race is that there really is this massive tome of, mm-hmm. of information that overwhelmingly indicates that this has been a major problem in our society dating before the Civil War. That has been politicized and it has been twisted and it's been used by different people groups to their own ends. But at the end of the day, the reality is that there is a racial divide. There is a racial tension. There is a racial problem. There are effects that we almost never bring up or take seriously that have that have spilled over from what's gone on for the last couple of hundred years. We don't do that. And I've, I've heard that multiple times, even with people that you've been talking to. We, we don't – we keep talking about the history. And everybody says, oh, yeah, the history. So, yeah, I know things used to be bad. If you really, really get down into it, mm-hmm. 
just even with the police thing, if you really do a study of how the police set themselves up against black people in the books, it's in the books. Okay. If you look at the history of lynching, yeah. Over decades of time. And so right away, people say, oh, there was only a few thousand people. I mean, if, again, if that's your immediate response <laughs> oh to that. <laughs> but seriously, Preston, that's what we do. We just somehow yeah, we just miss it, write it up. So what, where am I going? If, if you actually look at the history, or better still, if you're in relationship, not with just one yeah. person of color, but you actually have real relationships with people and you really do get to listen to people, yeah. okay? And you're in relationship with people. You come away saying there is, and there has been and there still is some kind of a problem going on. Mm-hmm. There is, there's some kind of a problem. What is that? So there's it just some- feels vague in general though. Like what? what is, what specifically is a problem that we should be actively fighting against? And what's the... So it- how do we it's interesting. solve the problem? And I know let's let's turn the corner on this because I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about the white fragility book that you <laughs> held up to me earlier, or <laughs> the problem not of white skinned people, but the problem of what now again I think this needs to be separated out, but of whiteness in quotation marks capital W whiteness, and <clears throat> what is that? It's it's a mindset. It's a mm. mindset of superiority or of somehow being better than other people. So again, I think we should just stop and let that one sink in because when I have conversations with people, it's really get defensive quick and really to say, I'm not a, I'm not a Ku Klux Klan member, right? That's where we run to just so easily. I'm, I'm not using the N word directly with people. I just think it's, it's, we can do better than that. Yeah. 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 I keep saying to my friends, I think our ancestors, again, that's a generalization. We're all coming from different backgrounds. But collectively, if you do the study and you go into the books, our ancestors worked really, really hard to keep us separated. They wanted that. They would be turning over in their graves right now to see all of the work that's being done to to bring people together, black and white people together. They were very committed to the idea that we should stay separate for biblical reasons, for intellectual reasons, for all these different rationale that they had to say, let's stay separated from one another. Let's go back. Go ahead. You want to finish? I don't want to. What you have to do to do that is you have to label people in a certain way that is less than. You have to do that Mm -hmm. to be able to keep them in subjugation, to be able to keep them in slavery, to be able to keep them out of being able to vote, to be able to keep them from being able to move into the neighborhood, to keep them out of your schools. The only way, and I will say this as a Christian person, the only way that you can possibly navigate that in your mind and still take communion on Sunday is to have convinced yourself (laughs) and to have convinced those that you live with that these people deserve to not be part of what we have. These people deserve to be left out somehow. So, again, that is the history. And so for us to just assume that that's just all gone now across the board, that that really does not still exist in the mindset. So I've seen even all the police things. and I don't, don't want to sprawl too much here. 
I don't, I don't need, and you know, I'm good friends with high ranking police people yeah, in our yeah. community, right? I'm, I'm tight with police guys, but I don't need studies to, I don't need a study to prove to me that in the situations that they find themselves in, that they might have a, a, a inclination to think that black skin is more predisposed to be doing something wrong than white skin. I don't need a study for that. And what makes it even worse is that I can find studies that are saying both things. Okay, so I don't even I don't even put that much stock. And I'm a researcher, Preston. You know, I I I love the pursuit of knowledge, but I'm highly suspicious of studies that get done. And so there, to me, there really is a ton of value in the reality that over the course of 50 years of being in relationship with black people, mm-hmm. I haven't met too many that didn't suggest that there was a problem when it came to their interactions with police mm-hmm. yeah. all across the all across this class stratosphere, mm-hmm. all across the class stratosphere from gangish type dudes that I've hung out with all the way up to PhDs. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there aren't any examples because now they're out online all over the place, right? The example that comes out and says, I never have ever had a problem with the police. No. In general, my experience in relationship has been, and there's something going on there. Yeah. There's something going on. There's, oh man, it's so, it's first of all, so good. Um, um, Man, where do I want to start? Backwards or let's see. <laughs> let's go back to the white the cop the cop one. You know okay. that that's I think there is. I don't know if either of us have the expertise to be able to speak into that. I think it's fine to ask questions and whatever, but it is it is it is complicated. Um, the question with the oh, police. Yeah. So here, I guess um, there will always be racist individuals there will always be implicit bias because we are christians and we believe human nature has fallen like that will never ever ever go away um there will always be isolated incidences of white cops um acting on that implicit bias um prior to the second coming of jesus (laughs) we will always have isolated incidences of that but you hear my term there isolated i mean the question is is there widespread systemic um and that i I don't know I, i do think we would need lots of different kinds of studies to document that because if there is a systemic problem it it will be manifested in a disproportionate number of um I would say white cop on black and that that's where the, the studies are mixed. You read that Coleman Hughes article. I mean, if I, <laughs> um, you know, the, the number yeah, of unarmed white people other. that have been gunned down by cops or nobody knows who Tony Timpa is, right? <laughs> Why don't we know who Tony Timpa is? I mean, that guy had a knee in his back for 13 minutes while the white cops were joking about, him as he was whimpering and suffocating 13 minutes the dude was suffocated and he was a white dude and nobody knows who he is i mean nobody it's it's it didn't create riots among um and yeah i would be the first one to say even ah, i don't know if i want to say this (laughs) again there's something historically connected um when it does happen to we don't live in a historical vacuum so so when there's an unfortunate 
incident where a white person was a, a victim of police brutality that doesn't have the same historical symbolism connectedness that it, when it happens to a black person, I'm still wrestling. It, it, we have to at least acknowledge that these, these aren't. Yeah. Does that make well, anyway. Preston, I wouldn't say we have to at least acknowledge it. I think that's really, 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 really important. important. Yeah. Okay. It's like really, really important that it's part of our family mythology that there's yeah. this extended, and what if I'm a, and if I'm in a black family, that there's this yeah. extended history yeah. that causes me to have to take very seriously that in an interaction with someone with a, with a gun, legally holding a gun on their waist, yeah. that I got to mind my p's and q's in a way that's different than if I didn't have black skin. We just we just have yeah. to take that seriously. Here's what I want to throw out about the police, and this is what I think is so messy about it: the police job is horrible. It's yeah. horrible to try to step into the situations they're stepping into with black people or white people. It, right. So I really do think that they're in, in my own reading and trying to get my mind wrapped around it. I really do think there's a police training problem that maybe even supersedes the race problem. Honestly, mm-hmm. that that uh, misuse of force. And, I mean, there's there's abuse of power yeah. just apart from the race. Let's just leave that aside for a second. You're saying yeah. that that yeah that that's that's for the sure. And that issue. they're being they're being trained in a certain way that makes it very militaristic mm-hmm. and um you know I read in one of these articles there's fifteen thousand police forces around the country so they're all different they're all being they're all getting different kinds of training mm-hmm. they're all being led in different ways which needs to be taken seriously mm-hmm. they have different mixes racially I mean there's a, a, a police officer that's dealing with stuff in downtown Dayton is right. going to be dealing with a different mix of stresses than one who's right here in Xenia, 20 miles away. And so it, it it is wildly different. And I would even throw this out, though. I mean, are police being trained to think morally? Just let that sink in. I don't hear anybody asking that question. Where are they getting a moral framework to even to even try to step into their job mm-hmm. being pro-human versus anti-crime? Yeah. Okay? I mean, in the best cases, maybe they're getting some kind of a moral training. But where are these men and women who are going to work in law enforcement getting moral training and virtue training so that they would even have a mentality yeah. that says – we're going to value human life, period. So I got to go. I got to go here before we forget. That requires more training, which might require more yeah. money. So does it make sense to defund the police department if we're actually asking the police to um, to have a higher bar of policing? I mean, <laughs> here, here's no. Listen, if that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I don't. <laughs> seems we like- want to spend the money on moral training. We want to spend money on trying to teach guys to and men and women to operate differently in our communities. I think that would be a different discussion. Of course not. And, and you know that ultimately that's more symbolic at this moment than, yeah. than, than anything. They're not going to continue to defund police departments. They're not going to do that. Seattle just slashed it in half, I think. I don't know if you saw that. They're letting go of 100, 100 – they're – cops the police chief resign the black police I'll be, chief re- I'll be shocked if it stays that way 
Well, I mean, it, the question Obviously, will be: Will crime go up or down? Will Will people of color and poor people um, uh, receive a better life, less crime, less murders, or will it will it go up or down? No. I can't imagine that it's going to go down. Take away the police? No. <laughs> I no, don't know. It's a lousy solution. It's a lousy solution. It is symbolic. So this, this we say that it's complicated. I don't think that that's the right solution. That's not what I would be banging a drum about to defund the police. Right. No. I, like, well, I understand. I, I do understand the, the logic of re- well. I understand a piece of the logic of redirecting funds to help get at the core issue of what is ultimately leading to higher crime. That there are. And here's here's where we have to talk about you know families the family and what what is leading to poverty and and are there unjust laws that are surrounding that I mean there's just poverty clustered poverty combined with the race conversation is incredible far outside my pay grade but I understand the logic of let's get to the the root of some of these issues I just don't think taking away money from the police and having less cops is the answer. I'm speaking no, as a citizen here, not as as a, because again, I I had this tension of non nonviolence and so on. I, I want to come back though, a, Ed, to um, the whiteness thing, Indiv- individual white people versus whiteness as a broad concept. I'm trying to get my mind around that, and even the, like this sense of superiority. Like uh, some people, a lot of people would probably assume that like if you are white, you belong to a group that intrinsically sees itself as superior to non-white people. Now, as an indi- how do I process that? Because as an individual, I'm in a sense I'm not even allowed to say I don't I don't know if I see myself like if I see myself as superior because of my skin. I mean, Robin D'Angelo will say, "Well, that's just your white fragility coming out. That's you being defensive." Preston, calm down. Hey, don't yeah. you you don't need to you know wield your privilege and get upset i'm just trying to help you understand how racist you really are well, i don't i don't, i'm not sure if i'm really a racist well that's that's because you're a racist <laughs> i that's yeah, I know. that is frust- I, this is where i'm like i don't may, and maybe i'm missing something but how how do like i i don't personally think i've never consciously experienced a sense of superiority because I'm white is that am I just totally blind is that or could it could some individual white people not actually feel that way even if the general perspective could be true yeah I don't know <laughs> I don't know if you're blind here's like do you Ed, do you, do you, I, do you think because you're white that do you see yourself as if you're being honest with yourself as superior to a black man or a Hispanic I feel like man I've been taught to be you've been sure yeah, I've been taught to be. How? Like, give me an example through, of how you've been taught to be. So, so how? So this, but let me just say this, Preston. Again, <laughs> when I let me just talk about personal experience because when I first heard that idea of white fragility, for example, and I read it in an article before the book even came out, okay. that I'm pretty sure was from from her, Robin D'Angelo. And the article just talked about how whenever the issue of race comes up, in her experience, white people get wildly defensive. Whenever they get, you know, exposed to even some of the things that we've talked about, the the history of what's gone on, people get angry and they get knee jerk defensive. Listen, if people 
just interacted with those ideas with some semblance of an open mind mm-hmm. to the possibility that it could be true and to explore themselves, I don't think she'd be making $10,000 per appearance right now. The reason why there's a cottage industry around this whole thing is because I think that there's some truth to how we, we, don't, we lose our minds when race comes up. Let me just say this. That's been my experience even as somebody who grew up and we didn't say all this. I, I grew up on about 20 miles on the west side of Cleveland in a very, very mixed environment, mm-hmm. uh, mixed with blacks, whites and Puerto Ricans. OK. And so even there where we were very mixed up and, and we were in really at least I was in relationships with all three of those populations you could see how race somehow um, was a reality for us in that there there was definitely divisions in the way people were viewed. Some of that had to do with class. It had to do with what part of town that you lived in. But there was definitely always still this attitude about those guys over there from the white people that I grew up around. Okay, And I grew up in a very ethnic um, – you know, my, my – Heritage is Polish, and I grew up in an area where there was this this huge Eastern European diversity, all these different enclaves within Lorain, Ohio. They had an international festival every summer, okay, where the, the floats would be populated with people from different ethnicities, okay? And so even in the midst of that, there was definitely a separation between those who had white skin and those who had mm-hmm. color in their skin. Okay, and I I could get into specifics, but just let me say that I grew up with that. Mm -hmm. Then when you really start to look at history books and you look at the histories that we were taught and you start to analyze TV shows and the messages that TV shows sent us and movies and Mm -hmm. pop culture Mm -hmm. and you look at church. So we're not even talking within the church body, but you look at the way we're taught theology like you wouldn't even know there was such thing as a black theologian. Yeah. In yep. most of our seminaries, at least not historically. Okay, so so yep. like every thread of my life has implicitly held up white people as being the the holders of truth and black people as being something less than that. And I know that's a crass I hate saying it, but you're asking me the question. Yeah. So so when I look at myself I mean, what does the gospel do to me? The gospel tells me in Philippians 2 to not think highly of myself, but to yeah. look out for the interests of other people. That has to do with people that have the same color skin as me, mm-hmm. people that have different color skin, people that are from different countries, people that are from different class strata. I mean, that's pretty comprehensive. And it's pretty overwhelming when you start to get confronted with yourself. Mm-hmm. When you start, I say you, I'll say me. When I start to realize the little prejudices that I actually do have towards people, the different prejudices that I have even towards people within my Christian community, it's like our mind just, it seems like our mind naturally gravitates towards creating separations between us and other people. Hmm. And it sure is a lot easier to do that when you live in a country that has worked really hard to keep a certain class of people always in that position historically, that being black people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, people are probably, if they've even listened this far, people are probably losing their mind about that. But 
I just don't think it's that big of a deal. When when Robin D'Angelo says that white people tend to be fragile when it comes to this, I say, yeah, they are. When she says that all of us are then racist under her terms, I'm, I'm more uncomfortable with that. When you keep trying to make blanket statements that necessarily condemn everybody to a position that they can never, ever escape from, what I say is, well, that's because you don't actually have the gospel in your presentation. Yeah. The gospel itself should allow us to escape from it. But see, that's not part of her book. Yeah. That's not part of her make. No. Okay. Well, church people should be able to access that. Can you not look at that and say, can you not study that and experience it in conversation to see that white people do tend to be super defensive when it comes to, to race? What it, I guess I and the, and the gospel should change me. The gospel should change me and make me able to say, well, it, it, it needs to look different. Yeah. It needs to look different. So I um, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm irritating I, you. I'm irritating you right now. No, no, I love it. So that's I, <laughs> keep going. Keep uh, going. So with D'Angelo and in, in the book White Fragility. Oh. Um, she gives all these examples of, of of examples where white people were agitated by having a race conversation, but I don't, is yeah. it just having a race conversation or the terrible way in which she's going about it? Like her ideas to me are just, just very, very unthoughtful sweeping. It reminds me of a, it, it, she reminds me of a fundamentalist pastor who is presenting yeah. horrible ideas in a terrible way, making generalizations. And when somebody says, yeah, I'm not really buying that, then they're accused of not embracing the truth. I'm like, well, no, I'm, I, I just, it's your idea. It's you that I don't buy. Like, <laughs> like, I, can I give you an example here? Yeah. Okay. I got the book in front of me here. Um, so I'll she's just make this clear. I'm not a Robin D'Angelo apologist <laughs> by any stretch. Okay, so that's the thing. Yeah. I think she does all kinds of things in there that are over the top, which is what you also do when you're trying to sell books, okay? <laughs> and you're trying to you're trying to create a platform for yourself. But go ahead, keep going. Give me an well, example. Well, I don't. She gives all these examples of how she was so like just she doesn't even see it. So pandering, so paternalistic, so smug yeah. and arrogant. She gives an example here of. Um, this is on page 74, 75. And I've got, I mean, I've got almost every page is just littered with, or you can't see it over there. This is yeah, 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 yeah. littered Fair with just enough. like, how can you say that? How can, or how can you give this example, which makes you look so terrible and think that like, you're so like self, not even aware of like how smug you are. But so she gives an example of doing this, you know, diversity training and, um, I don't know if I'm going to get, I don't know if I'm going to get it all. So, so there's a person that in the training, a white person gives a story of how they came to realize how they need to listen to black people more. And she gives an example where she was like this, you know, black lady was protesting something and, and she actually, it was a, it was a really beautiful example of a white person coming to grips with some of their implicit racial bias. But when yeah. she she actually imitated um, the black lady who was talking, and as Robin D'Angelo says, in a stereotypical black voice, and then 
when she was done telling the story, Robin D'Angelo says, you know, I understand that you gained valuable insight from that interaction. I thank you for sharing that insight with us. I'm going to ask that you consider not telling that story in that way again. Totally shame the person in public when they maybe possibly did some. I mean, was she imitating the, the black woman in a black voice because she was being stereotypical or is that just the way the person talked? I mean, I, you know, like I don't. <laughs> and earlier she says we shouldn't be ashamed of black skin. Like we shouldn't, you know, whatever. Like let's. And so it's like, I don't, I don't even, maybe it was problematic, maybe not. But do you literally miss the, the, the great growth this person has had to publicly shame them for simply the way they retold the story. And she immediately began to protest. And so I interrupted her and continued. <laughs> so let me give you, let me give it an, an analogy. Cause I do a lot of like leadership training on LGBT stuff. And one thing that I tell people not to do is use the word homosexual. So let me give you a yeah. parallel story. A, maybe an older conservative Christian saying, you know what? I had a couple of homosexuals move in next door. And at first I was really annoyed, but then I, you know, prayed to God, like God, give me, give me the, the grace to like reach out to my homosexual neighbors. So they walk over with a, um, a bunch of cookies and said, Hey, you know what? I just want to thank you for moving into the neighborhood. I'm, you know, my name's so-and-so I'm so thankful you're here. Here's some cookies. And, uh, I've, I've really grown to love, you know, my homosexual neighbors. What if I jump in as my, you know, as Robin DeAngelo says, you know, thank you for sharing that. But I would ask that you never share the story in that way again. And the person's like, what, what, what did I do? Like, well, you said the word homosexual, that's just dehumanizing. And like, I just shut that person down, even though like, okay, they use the word that they shouldn't use, but goodness, can't you see the, <laughs> but she does that all throughout the book. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like you you sound like so many r- radical fundamentalist pastors that I know. I'm just giving you the truth. Don't get defensive. Well, you, oh, you don't, you don't want to grow as a person. Okay. Well, yeah. that's just, you're being, you know, fragile. <laughs> anyway, we, we don't need to talk yeah, about that book. Any, I mean, we don't need to get into it, but it, I want to though, because I feel like this, this has been a big conversation around me lately. So this is what, and you got me on here as, on your show. So I want to say some things I've been thinking about this. Okay, <laughs> I don't understand. I totally agree with you. So now we're critiquing. We're critiquing her as a presenter. Just stay with me. I told you I'm not an apologist for her. It makes my skin crawl too. I've seen videos of her, and I'm like, I, I can't. Why? I'm not using that anywhere. I don't. I don't like her vibe. I don't like the the. Um, the elitist, all the reasons that people are railing against her. Okay, great. Is what she's saying worth at least thinking about white people? Again, stay with me. Mm-hmm. Because the majority, I can hardly name, I've tried to do this. I, as I'm chuckling to myself about this whole thing even, across my life, when I like I told you, when I first heard the idea of white fragility and people, white people in particular, just not being able mm. to talk about race, I'm like, oh yeah, it's just so true. Like the only people that I feel like are are much easier able to do that are people that grew up in more environments, like you've even said, Preston, where you grow up in LA and you grow up at least around racial difference, right. or in the community I grew up in, you've at least got a chance to try to to try to have a conversation about race, but most people are, are hyper reactive 
And it's not just, so again, I feel like you're almost too easily dismissing it. Yes, sometimes they're reacting. And I've seen this even in my own settings where these trainings are going on. Sometimes people are reacting against a statement that they don't think is true. Sometimes people are reacting because they're now in a trap, which is what I feel like is happening now, that they can never get out of. They can never win. Do you want me to come talk to you when something happens in society or am I supposed to stay away from you right now because something happened in society? Do you want me to try to have open and honest conversations about how I feel or is that centering my whiteness now? And you're, It's a total trap yeah. right now. Okay, I, I get that and I've watched it happen and it's not fair and it's maybe an overcorrection now where white people are always wrong about everything and every yeah. situation. No, that's no good. So again, Christian, filled with the spirit, can I take Robin D'Angelo's years of experience as so she has at least she has sat in these environments and not dismiss everything that she's saying and ask the question, why do white people tend to be defensive about race in general? If you bring up the history of lynching, and Preston, I've done this even with my crew. You know, I'm on staff with crew. Yeah. With conversations that I'm having with other white staff and their immediate reaction to any suggestion about race is to get defensive. It's to assume that this is just a tool of critical theory. It's to assume that it's the liberal Democrats. It's to right away when guys are kneeling (laughs) in the NFL, when guys are kneeling in the NFL – There weren't hardly any conversations in the church with people I'm hanging out with about why is it, what are the underlying causes Mm -hmm. that might cause a guy to do something that is going to be wildly reacted against, and he knows that. Mm -hmm. Why are we not talking about what is underlying that instead of having conversations about respect for the flag solely, which it turned into? Here, here's here's why, yeah. So I, I feel like the good stuff in white fragility, and with any book, the Quran. Okay, there's good stuff. You know, there's nothing yeah. is just completely off. So maybe it's the the helpful points of that book and other books like it. Um, maybe it's stuff that I've already kind of been awakened to on some level for a while now, and I've seen. I mean, because of you, dude, you're the one that told me to read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which wrecked my life in a good way. I mean, that was just so brutally eye opening. Um, why? Why is that? Talk talk about that for the sake of, you know, this conversation that, and people that, listening to it. I mean, that so I mean, it's been, what, 15 years since I read it. Um, but I, I yeah. just remember following his journey from childhood, teenage, adulthood and just in as much as it's possible through somebody else's autobiography to see the world through their eyes, living as a black kid in the you know thirties, forties, fifties, um, in a very you know obviously not not just so that what it was eye opening was even the well intentioned white people to show how belittling and disempowering they were. The story of that school teacher who he speaks highly of that really saw him as an amazing student and everything, but then said, um, yeah, you'll, you'll yeah. never make it in life. Like this. Or he wanted to be a lawyer or something. Yeah. Some yeah. And like, well, Malcolm, yeah. yeah, that's not for you. Um, and, and just see, just, <laughs> yeah, just, that. just marinating in what it was like growing up as a black kid who very, was very innocent, but slowly began to see how corrupt 
um, the system is and how white supremacy um, bleeds into so many areas of life. It was, it was super eye opening, and and I and I I love. I was I was so I, I was so thrilled to have that kind of awakening. And maybe that's more my demeanor. I love um, I love seeing where I need to peel the layers off of my lens, my my eyes, and see things yeah. in a better light. Like I, I enjoy that experience. I loved. When I looked at violence, I love when I looked at the doctrine of hell. Like I, I enjoy seeing where I have been wrong and how, where I've been blind. And um, and even now, there's loads of things I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm blind to. So, um, so when it comes to the race, and, and you know, another book that we haven't even talked about, you kind of hinted around it, but James Cone, uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Dude, that book yeah. is incredible. Incredible yeah. how lynchings that didn't happen that long ago, a hundred years ago, they were publicized in a newspaper and people would bring their families to show up at the next, the lynching in the town square. This is insane. And, and, and for him to connect the dots between the black Christian experience in that time with the crucifixion of Jesus and how lynchings were connected historically to the lynching of Jesus and how people saw a symbolic connection there, what that did to their faith. That was a brilliant, brilliant insight. Um, so I, I guess when people today like D'Angelo and others are kind of drawing attention to some of these blind spots that we've had, I, I guess I, I've, I don't know. And I, I don't want to sound like I, I, I haven't arrived. Okay. I'm not saying, but like, I, I'm, I'm like, yeah, totally. I absolutely like that's not, it's, does anybody deny that? And, and you're saying, yeah, a lot of people deny that. Yes. White people do uh, push back and all this stuff. I'm like, well, okay, that that's, that's, that's lame. Yeah. To not acknowledge any kind of historical connectedness between our d- deep, dark past and today or not acknowledge that there are structural societal um, things that there's not implicit racial bias. I mean, I, I guess I've just assumed these things to be true for so long that I don't need some white lady to. <laughs> no, Preston, I think that's good. And you know what? <clears throat> so this is this is um, this is helpful. It's helpful even hearing you say that because that's what grates me too. Okay. Uh, about her I, I don't need her to to point that out to me so there's some you know a lack of humility maybe in there somewhere there's the pride thing when you're getting jabbed by somebody like who does she think she is okay so I got to wrestle with that you got to wrestle with that in your own way but one of the things that that happened for me and I'm trying to remember which of these stories because I've had a couple of them that I want to tell you. I, I, I just remember thinking everybody gets this, okay? So I remember in the mid-1990s, maybe it was around when all the Rodney King stuff was happening, and we were having this conversation inside of the parachurch organization that I've been a part of for you know almost 30 years, and I can remember thinking, I don't want to do this. Like Again, the things, like everybody gets this. There is not really a race problem. People see the world the way I see the world, which was having grown up in a really mixed environment, right. okay? And I remember going to this big, large gathering that we had, and I was shocked to hear the things that were being said. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the back of the room, and I don't remember the details of it now, so I'm not even going to try to make them up. But they were saying some really... um non-empathizing things they were saying some very white supremacist Hmm. things 
Okay, before that was even being used as language. <laughs> and I remember just sitting there thinking, oh my gosh. So, and I'm, because I've been getting in these discussions even with some of my black friends on staff and trying to convince them it's not as big of a problem as you keep saying that it is. And then I went to this meeting and heard what people were saying, mm-hmm. and I just sat there and thought, I'm wrong. Yeah. I'm wrong. And not, and then I started to really try to take seriously what are people's histories, their mm-hmm. own personal histories, because it really matters and makes a big difference. Lisa Fields said that. Yeah. That yeah. she was she grew up around nothing but black people. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I had friends like that in college who grew up on the east side of Cleveland. They only knew black life in yeah. Cleveland. Yeah. And I knew I met white people who for the very first time I met white people who had never had an interaction with a black person when I went to Kent State at college. First time. Well, they've got wildly different views and experiences when it comes to to race and racial interaction and where they're at in this conversation. And and I've, I've said this. So in the mid 90s, in my parachurch organization, we were started having these conversations and reading these kinds of books. Well, now I'm part of another branch of the same crew organization and i feel like they haven't even hardly started to have the conversation yet it's like they're 30 years behind seriously i'm not exaggerating it's never been a topic of conversation for them wow so so to be fair man i think people are all over the place i think people are all over the place the the tide of history has been to encourage us as white people, to think of ourselves as better than non-white people, that's the tide of history. Sure. It doesn't sure. mean, you know, we're all at different places individually. The tide of history in this country has been to do that. Mm-hmm. And so can I do some both and thinking? Can I, can I take an honest, hard look at myself in the mirror and see where I may still be holding on to some non-gospel, unchristian partialities? and separations. Can I do that? And, and not feel like then I've got to carry around guilt. Okay. So we haven't even talked about white privilege. I don't feel guilty about the privileges I have. I just feel more of a stewardship responsibility. Mm -hmm. I feel again, it's not even just racially. I've got all kinds of privileges that I'm aware of, you know, and so I need to steward them, not feel guilty about them. Yeah. So the conclusions that a lot of these non-Christian authors especially wind up taking us to, I'm not worried about those. I'm not spending all my time criticizing their conclusion. I'm taking the best of what I think they're offering me in terms of a critical theory lens, Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to apply the gospel to it to look at life differently. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's a good reminder. I mean, yeah, I, I, I do feel like I swim in slightly different waters. Um. Than a lot of Christians do. So, like when you say that, that it's shocking how behind some of these subcultures of Christianity are behind on the race conversation, or have never even considered, never even read a black theologian or something. I'm like, gosh, that's just weird. But I guess it, if if that is does exist on higher levels than I realize, then yeah, then we need to um, keep having that conversation. You know, the whole thing of priv- privilege is tricky, and this is where. And again, I'm not an expert. Um, I'm 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 thinking through. I just I see these terms just thrown around with not a lot of thoughtfulness. I don't mean that in a negative way, in in a neutral way. Like I does it doesn't seem like they've. It just seems like on a sociological, psycho, psychosocial, psychosocial level, there's various 
ways in which people can have privileges and, and certain my big my big thing and I, i've yet to hear somebody really critique this it's kind of a thinking out loud thought but um okay. certain contexts social geographical contexts um determine what privilege is um if i as a white evangelical male give a speech at berkeley <laughs> My, my, do I have, am I, is my white maleness, straightness, cisgenderness, is that, is that helping in that situation? My evangelicalness, or is it actually a hindrance? If I'm, um, and we can talk about athletics too. This is something that, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say that for a second, but like, it depends on the context. Like, are, but certain environments, does my evangelicalness, my whiteness bring me privilege? Abs, you would be just stupid to, to, Literally, like to to not say it does in some context, maybe in many contexts, but just to make a blanket statement of everywhere I go, every situation, my whiteness helps me. I just I don't I see that as just sociologically a little naive. Um, in twenty twenty, is it being a white evangelical? Is that is that helpful? <laughs> I mean, I don't. <laughs> uh, no, and again, I think it, I'm totally with you on this. I'm totally with you on that perspective. What's interesting is the person who popularized it, Peggy McIntosh, if yeah. you go to her website, maybe you've already done this, but go to Peggy McIntosh's website and you'll see she's got this whole list of disclaimers. And I don't know when she <laughs> added them, but this whole list of disclaimers, really, one of which is exactly what you're saying. The, the concept of privilege, even though she is a white liberal feminist, okay, mm -hmm. and is definitely skewed in that direction. She still was making a generic statement to say that this observation of privilege was just one that that caused her to start to empathize with people differently, mm, okay. people of color in particular. And she said, but privilege, this is a great exercise just to think of all the different levels of privilege that you have in society. Sure. And again, I don't know what I don't even remember what she says to do with them. Then I think I think her ultimate conclusion is to is to be able to empathize. No, that's helpful. Yeah. Do, do you well, think so, our Do you think our background in athletics um, contributes to how you and I are processing this? Um, for sure. Like I grew up for in a I grew up in a fairly so I was a poor white kid in a largely Hispanic. Um, so 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 my social class was you know low. Um, yeah. And ethnically, I had like white wealthy Christian or white wealthy friends, but they weren't in my neighborhood. So I kind of had this weird, you know, poor white kid in a Hispanic neighborhood. So I had friends on both sides, but, um, and, and there was, I, there was in California, man, it's different than the South. I keep coming to grips with that, but it, it, there's racial tensions, not nearly as pronounced as when I hear people describe the South, but man, in athletics, it's, um, it, it I mean, you want to win the game. You can care less. It's just like, and you go home to your own sort of neighborhoods, or whatever. But like, I don't know. I just maybe I never saw myself as a supremely better player because I'm white. Because it just doesn't make sense. Like, just look at my batting average. Like, either it's better, or it's not. Either this pitcher, whatever is, you know, either he struck me out and had a 92 mile an hour fastball that I couldn't hit, and I was like, dude, you got to kill her fastball. You know, um, I, it's it's when it comes to athletics, it's like raw talent is what everybody's gonna value, and uh, the ethnicity does not. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it's like I don't know. 
Have you thought about this at all, or am I making stuff up? <laughs> no, I've thought about it a ton. So we could explore why there were no black quarterbacks until a certain point in time. We could explore why there still are no blacks in certain positions of power within these leagues. But let's just lay that aside for a second. Because I feel like what you're saying, not intentionally, but I feel like what you're saying is a little bit of a misapplication of the point. So of course, I was a white guy at a most playing basketball <laughs> at a school that was mostly made up of black guys playing basketball. I think there were two of us that were white on my varsity team my senior year. Okay, so was that a was that a was that an advantage? No, not in that context. <laughs> but overall, the the the. You'll, you'll see this written in different ways all over the place. I saw this book called uh, How the Irish Became White. Okay, have you ever heard that book? <laughs> no. What a great title. Right, right, write that one down. How the Irish Became White. Okay? And so this, mm. this is why. This, I feel like we need, to, we need to set up ahead of time one or two topics and then really dig down into them because I feel like we – and I love talking to you, Preston, and I love that we do this. But when it comes to these things, I really feel like we would be better served if we really could do a deep dive into some of this yeah. stuff. So we're supposed to. We're supposed to be on critical theory. Ditch that. Well, I know. Well, I so <laughs> Irish people at some point achieved their whiteness and were assimilated mm. into white society. One of the main ways that they did that was the stance that they started to take towards black people. Because wow. at one time, Irish people were treated like yeah. about on the same level as other dark-skinned minorities in this country when they first came over. And part of, and again, this is this is you can you can read the history of how this happened. Okay, that's still different than the black experience. They weren't enslaved for two hundred years, and they didn't experience they Jim Crow. But the point is, it's always better to have white skin in this yeah. country in general than it is to have black skin. Yeah. Do you get um, affirmative action scholarships? Do you, are there privileges, in quotes, that are being given to you for being a minority right now? Yes. That's not the point. The point is that in general, because of the way the country has been constituted over centuries, it is better to have white skin than to have dark Histo in general. Would you say – I mean obviously historically, nobody with half a brain would deny that historically. The question is as we progress and move forward, is that still as dominant of a truth or is it less? Does it still exist on what level – and as um, Tyler said to you, progress depends on where you're looking from yeah. and whether you thought there was a problem to begin with. And what I'm saying is what concerns me is I still think that the majority of white people that I talk to, they don't – dude, whether it was in the 90s mm – -hmm. so this is the thing. I've got 50 years now. I'm 52 years old, okay? Dang, you're started, having, started having these conversations in my teen years where I started to become aware of race, mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm saying over the course of four decades, and then I became a Christian in my 20s. So again, we're, we're not even – because I think there's a difference between the way the Christian community should be handling this and the way the larger community yeah. is handling this. Okay? I feel like that's a separate discussion almost. But by and large, the attitude whenever there's a flag that gets waved by black people saying, hey – we got a problem over here. Yeah. We, we, we've got a, a, a socioeconomic problem. We've got a law problem. We've got a way that we're being portrayed in culture problem. Mm -hmm. We got a problem with the police. We got a problem when it comes to housing. We 
the immediate reaction in general mm-hmm. has not been one to say, how do we fix that? Yeah. What could we do? Okay. What's been the history that's got us there? And is there something that we can do now to help change it? The immediate reaction is defensiveness. Hmm. It's to talk about criminality. It's to talk about black on black crime. It's to talk about how there's not enough black fathers in the home. It's to talk about how all we need is the gospel. That's that's the latest one that I keep watching. on. All we need is the gospel. Oh, that's... And I say, well, all we've had is the gospel for hundreds of years when all this horrible stuff was going on. What were those Christ followers doing yeah. with the gospel back then? I'm not saying we need more than the gospel, but we need to change our lenses yeah. because yeah. we've already made some preconceived commitments to saying, if we've made a preconceived commitment to saying there's not a problem, this is just a tool of the liberal media. This is just academic junk that's trickling down to popular culture. If we're just we're dismissing it through those means. Wait, well, real ne- quick though, I don't, I don't. The defense we'll though, take it seriously. When people say, you gave a string of examples. When people say the black on black crime and fatherlessness, they're not saying there's not a problem. They're just saying, let's look at some of the core roots of no they're not preston like i can't i can't even let you say that no they're not because any of the people that say that to me don't come right back and say let's see how we can fix both the systemic problem which systemic problem is more than just police like that's that's it's been overly simplified now when we talk about systemic problems now it's just the police which is so complicated that again we don't ever really have to take seriously that it's been hardwired, certain things have been hardwired into our our nation and the way that we think about these things. We don't ever have to really look at that. We just dismiss it. It's always dismissive. Okay, so I hear you saying like when people say, yeah, but fatherlessness, yeah, but uh, black on black crime, that's not because they're actually trying to address it. That's their way of saying, it's not this. It's not that. Thank you for coming. Go back to my white suburb kind of thing. No. And here's one that'll light the fire. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I just was writing a piece the other day titled white and black fragility. Okay. So this will make people happy. So we just talked about what I think white fragility is. It's just, it is a defensiveness, like an inability to even entertain the possibility <laughs> that these things could be true. Black fragility is now we can never say we need to do something about the family. Yeah. We can never say there is a black on black problem. We can never say you are being used as a tool of of Democrats, that there may Mm -hmm. be actually a political system that would better serve what it is that you're after instead of just going along with the Democrats all the time. We can't even have that conversation. That gets shot. All of that gets shot down immediately. And I say, as a person who is trying to transcend the polar extremes as a Christian, we should be able to look down on that and say both sides are wrong in certain of their conclusions. And both sides need to be able to come to the table with some empathy Mm -hmm. and humility and not just listening, never pushing back. I'm not saying that, but actually really listen. Okay. Instead of defending, like I think some of my white friends now, they so hate liberal media. Yeah. They so hate democratic politics 
they they've skewed themselves from even being able to have a Christian response to these things anymore. They they can't think with Christian eyes, yeah, because they're so filled with hatred. Get this, yeah, they're so filled with hatred towards their perception of this other side. Yeah, and I'm not. I get it. I, <laughs> I totally get it. But you can't even construct a Christian emotion called yeah. empathy. Or weep with those who weep, and right? You don't even oh. know how to access that in these situations because all you're doing is hating on the other side. I, I would and say that that is a byproduct of being partisan. Whether you're on the left or the right, news outlets, and there's sociological reasons for this. I mean, they're clickbaity. They're trying to provoke anger. That's why you're going to go on to another article and that's how they make money. These traditional media outlets, they're dying. I mean, they're literally starving for money and yeah. attention. So they will do whatever it takes to get attention. What? What's just psychologically, how do you get attention? You provoke somebody's anger. And so both sides... So why are you falling for that, Christian? Why are you well, falling Yeah, that's, for- that's a deeper... Yeah, totally. Um, it is. Or we say people say that they're being the black people are being used by the Democrats, and I say white evangelicals well, are being used by the Republicans. Totally, yeah. We're all being yeah. used, man. Why are you falling for it? Yeah. Why do you really, really believe that you're standing over here in the truth, shouting and screaming yeah. at that side over there? That's not what we're called to. I'm yeah. serious. No, I agree. As Christ followers, there's something twisted about that on both sides. Yeah, yeah, on both sides. Um, I, I, okay. Slightly different turn. When you're talking about like, I mean, this kind of has to do with everything we've been talking about, but how, how do you respond? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about this yet. So it's a genuine okay. question. When people say, look, we had a, when people say, you know, there's such a massive race problem in America, we had a democratically elected black president. Um, we had, you know, it, Oprah Winfrey worth what? 2.2 billion. I don't know how many billions of dollars she's worth. We have, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick getting paid millions of dollars to kneel before the anthem. You've heard you've heard these arguments, and I I, yeah. I could genu- I could see both sides. For me, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, a few anecdotal examples doesn't discredit the claim that there is something more systemic. Systemic doesn't mean 100 percent will never make it. It just means the there's still systematic problems. On the other hand, it it, it is a little bit. I don't know. I just kind of like smile a little bit when Oprah Winfrey worth billions of dollars is talking about white privilege. And I'm like, I don't know. It'd, be, it'd, it'd mean a little more if you had somebody who's stuck in endless poverty, even though they're working hard to say that, but somebody is like one of the most powerful humans in America um, worth billions of dollars. It does. It doesn't mean as much. I don't know. So I, I don't know. I kind of can, I can see both sides of that kind of argument, citing so individual examples of super, super powerful, successful people of color. Um, it does seem to question a little bit how systemic things are. I don't know. What do you think about that? How do you respond well, I to think that? It, I just think it's both and again. I think it's both and. What is in both? The, like what? What's the both and what's the, the end? In what? the sense that, and you said this at the very beginning. My goodness. And I see people rage about this, too. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world, I don't think. Now, again, that's a pretty blanket statement because I've only been to a handful of other countries. But I'm going to grant that I think that in terms of overall freedoms okay, and opportunities in general, 
you are way better off here no matter what color you are and no matter what your current sociological status is. Okay, yeah. poverty looks different here than it looks over in India. Right. Okay. Uh, there's problems with that, but I'm. I'll no, I, I think it's fair. Here. I'll throw that out on the table. Um, I, I saw a Modelo commercial the other day. You know the beer Modelo? Yeah, yeah, it's good beer. So if you look at those, the one I saw the other day was on this boxer. I forget his name now, but the tagline is "It doesn't matter where you come from." And of course, all these Modelo commercials are about a rags to riches story. Okay. Mm-hmm which is interesting. I don't know why they're doing this. I haven't studied it at all, but they're all rags to riches. It doesn't matter where you came from. It matters what you're made of. Okay. And we all salute that. We, we love that idea. Okay. As Americans, we do. And can I say to that, that that's a true statement? I, yeah. You know what? I got all kinds of examples because there's free will Okay, this is where the theology enters into it. Because there's free will, people get to make choices in the midst of whatever circumstances mm-hmm. they find themselves in. And by God's grace, they may rise up out of it and become something special. Mm-hmm. On, the, on, the, on the, the historical timeline, you may become something special because of choices that you make. That is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Both and, and where you come from does matter. It does matter. Of course it matters. <laughs> it does matter. So again, can we mature to a point of being able to suggest that both of those are true, that if you're born into the world and you immediately have resources and you've, you know, you're playing Monopoly and the cards have already been dealt and you're holding a whole bunch of them, you are in position to yeah. succeed. Now you still got to make choices, but yeah. you're still in yeah. position to succeed differently than the person whose first role is to wind up on your properties that have already been bought up. That yeah. person is at a disadvantage. Now they can quit. They can throw in the towel. Or they can keep rolling and scratch and claw and try to find their way through around the board. Okay, they yeah. can do that, but they definitely are at a disadvantage. Yeah. Totally. Okay. So can we say that both of those are true without having to freak out? Yeah, no, we- absolutely. And that's, yeah. To me, it's just, again, it seems so so obvious that it's shocking that, and this is where, so, you know, some people on the white fragility side, and I even, I keep notes in the back of my books, like where they talk about stuff, where do they mention this, whatever. And I have a category here of moral agency of the individual. And you can see. Never mentions it. <laughs> yeah. There's there is no individual. There's no moral agency. There is no. It's all structural, systemic, and I'm like, that's a healthy corrective to the other person who's going to say it's all individual. Just work hard. Everybody has an equal opportunity. That's that's just naive. But to swing well, the other side and to say that moral agency, moral responsibility, individualism, even if you have some cards stacked against you, um, yeah, it, it has to be a both end. But even even here, I mean, we. I don't to reduce everything to race again, thinking out loud. I just question, I mean, physiological, I mean, if you, <laughs> if you're a, a short, not good looking, socially awkward, uh, overweight white dude, and then you're, you know, a super athletic black guy, um, it's good looking, has good social skills. He may have certain cards stacked against him based on 
whatever, the color of his skin, the socioeconomic, whatever. But like, there's other things that we should consider too that do give somebody certain amounts of privilege in certain contexts. You know, For um, sure. people George, that are George super Pete short or super tall. You yep. know, if you're seven two, uh, you're you're gonna you're, you're gonna walk through life with everybody staring at you, everybody looking weird. You might not get hired as easily subconsciously because people don't want a seven foot two waiter that everybody's gonna stare at. Like I just just there's so we're we're sociologically complex beings, and this is where I resist any kind of oversimplification of what it is to be human in a complex society. I, I do see that happening in some branches of the race conversation, but so do I. And but so even the way you started this whole thing, this, this is kind of uh, this is how annoying I've become. And I didn't do it to you because I'm because we're going back and forth. But the very first thing you said was to boil everything down to race. Yeah. And what I wanted to say right away is, well, well you don't have to do that. Why are you accept? Why are you accepting that premise? Now, I know that Robin might be doing that mm. and some of her colleagues and see this is how they operate. They in the academic world. Yeah, I think they have some really whacked out places that they wind up going to and statements that they end up making. Yeah. And you and I both know that part of the reason they do that is to get published because you don't get published being middle of the road or trying to figure out how to come into the middle. You get published by saying wild stuff and then making defenses for it. And then guess what happens? <laughs> what you're doing is you're spurring a whole bunch of works over here. They're going to react to it. It's almost like there's this mm. implied understanding that we need to keep saying wild things. Yeah. Okay. I, this is you just did it. The lens of privilege is a fascinating lens to look through. Mm -hmm. It's hugely complex. It's super interesting. We should be really careful about drawing too many hard and fast conclusions about cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's chaos theory in some ways. It's just you got all these parts that guess what? I believe a sovereign God causes things to work themselves out according to his will and his purposes regardless of where you came from or what color you are, or all these other things that we've talked about. Okay. Mm -hmm. I really, I believe that over this whole thing, sociologically speaking and looking at life under the sun. Mm -hmm. Okay. Looking at life under the sun, even apart from God should, it takes me down some other paths where I can pull out the race idea, mm -hmm. for example, and I can make observations about what's happening racially. Mm -hmm. I can make some observations about that. It doesn't mean that there's not any other factors at play, yeah. but can I make some observations yeah. about race? If you're the type of person that is basically shutting that down immediately, yeah. which is what I see happening too much, then you're not being honest about things. The same thing I used to say at Bowling Green when they would try to say that it all comes down to this, okay? It all comes down to race, okay, mm -hmm. or, or power. And I would say, yeah, it's actually more complicated than that. You're not being honest. You're not being intellectually or academically honest about that. You sound just like my fundamentalist <laughs> brethren over here who are being just as dishonest. And mm -hmm. I, I thought – that in a PhD program, even at a liberal secular school, there would be a commitment, and so I was wrong about this, to finding the truth. That really is gone now, okay? Mm -hmm. Just like everybody suspic is suspicious. It's gone. 
And so that I at least then want to believe that you'll do what's best for humanity and for us as people, that's largely gone. I can remember very specific conversations of saying stuff like that. That won't help us be able to bridge the gap between one another. And I remember one woman in particular saying, I don't want to bridge the gap. I'm not interested in yeah. making peace with the other side. And I'm like, okay. When, no, you, when a- you view the other side as KKK members, you're not having a conversation with them. Or men, period. Okay, again, because this is gender, it's sexuality, yeah. it's race. You go after all these different categories. And so I say, well, you guys aren't being honest because there's a lot of other reasons why it is that black people wind up in some of the spots they wind up in that go beyond just white supremacy. I say that to them. Mm-hmm. When I'm with my white friends, though, who are immediately sending me Candace Owens videos on the eve of Ahmaud Arbery being shot in the middle of the road by two guys who chase him down, my first reaction is, "Yeah, you're not being honest here, man." What, what is it? With, not- yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of really amazing black intellectuals that would have a very different perspective than the kind of dominant anti-racist, um, but you know, I, I don't know if you paid attention to like Glenn Lowry, I mean, John McWhorter, these are kind of the new, you know, Thomas souls of the day or whatever. Um, but they're not, they're not, they're not Republican. They're not particularly conservative. Um, uh, but they're just, they, they, they're, they do question some of the dominant narratives as, as black men who do have the lived experience. Um, but what, I don't, what is it? Okay. I mean, <laughs> I mean, she she's got some interesting stuff to say, but she's so political. Brandon uh, Tatum, same thing. I don't know if you've seen him. Um, yes, I've seen him. Listen, so here's what's interesting about all those guys, and I'm not saying this to dismiss them because I don't no. disagree with everything they're saying. They're, not at they've all. They've got a lot of – yeah. Listen, the point is you need to be – you, if you're a Christian, should still be coming from a worldview that believes in truth. Right. So – We need to do a little more work, though, than just to react against everybody that we hear from and immediately think we've got the truth. I at least appreciate you, Preston. You need to read more. Dig a little deeper. Go beyond just articles that have been written or the latest study that's come out. Maybe dig a little deeper and read a book or two, okay? Seriously. Wait, me? Or – all, no, all of us. Oh, all of us. I was going to say, I've been reading books. That's all I do is read books. <laughs> I know. No, I know. And that's – that's so you're going deeper down into the rabbit hole and things are always a little more complicated down there. Yeah. So what's interesting though about all those guys is if you go and read all of their bios, they really are coming from these very privileged places to begin with. Yeah. Uh, even uh, Coleman Hughes that you sent. Yeah, I mean he's yeah. 23 years old. They're all Ivy Leaguers. Yeah. Brandon's yeah. a former NFL player. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not – so what does that mean? It doesn't mean then that I, I'm dismissing everything they're saying. It just means that they are definitely part of a group of people that have, that have tread a different path to get where they're at than, than the black people that are on the east side of Xenia over here right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just I'm just making that statement. There are, and I think Lisa Fields was was yeah. saying that I can't remember all of them now that I've listened to all these, but um, you know she made the statement that they don't necessarily they're not representing the mass of black people right, right. that are out yeah. there. Yeah. What I think they're doing, okay, besides the fact that they are coming from privileged places, maybe largely because of choices that they've made. 
largely because of having intact homes maybe i don't know i don't know all their details (laughs) i mean (laughs) how many black people do wind up as ivy league professors that's still that's a minority of guys okay what i hear them railing against are liberal politics what i hear them railing against is overly simplistic liberal politics that are using black people Mm -hmm. to further a particular white political aim which they don't say (laughs) that very often but it is a white political aim And they're sick of being used by white liberals, okay, for their own aims. And so they are taking the other side to say, let's let's stand on our own two feet. We don't need yeah. white people to go to bat for us in the way that they're trying to go. We don't need Robin D'Angelo. Right. You don't need that. Police definitely have a more complicated mm-hmm. uh, job than just to go around looking for black people to kill. There is something to be said for you know, not being out at midnight and staying off certain streets. I mean, there is something to be said for that. Okay. Overly simplistic because in some communities you can be minding your own business and trying to stay out of trouble and still get pulled over because you're black. There are plenty of stories to that end. Okay. But I think that's what the majority of the Thomas Sowell, I've heard you reference him. You know, I've read all those guys and I think they make some great conservative insights. Mm. Um, And I think they hate, white liberal media or any liberal media doesn't matter what color they are so i would even say i would say some of the more black this this is why i brought them up because candace owens is hyper partisan brandon tatum he wears his maga hat you know these are and they're thoughtful but they're not intellectuals um the ones that i'm referring to aren't they're they would be liberal in the classic sense um or all partisan they're just not on the radical woke liberal right. white left. And that's where they right. say these radical left white people uh, think they're doing us a service and they're actually hurting the black community. But um, we got to end well, on that, bro. Cause I got another interview right now, like literally right now. So I got to cut you off, dude. And we're just getting warmed up and we said lots of stuff that we should probably go back and edit, I but know. we're not going to. We're going to let it sit. So It all needs to be edited um, out, man. Ed Uzinski at gmail.com. Send all your... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows how to spell... I can't even spell your name, man. No one would yeah, anyway. Don't spell it. Don't give him any real address <laughs> or anything. Thanks, bro, for being on. Appreciate you. Love the conversation. Always walk away challenged and a better a better person, man. So appreciate Me you. Me too. Let's do, it. Let's do it again. All right. Take care, dude. Okay. See you. Bye.